Today, I want to finish up the Colossians series. Let's pray real quick. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace today. We thank you for the resurrection of Jesus. We thank you for the reality and hope of heaven. We thank you for the power of the gospel changing lives in this life. We thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit. You said would never, ever leave us, ever. You said would be with us and in us forever. So we thank you also, God, for this little letter to the Colossians. I ask that you'd put power on my words, that as I speak, you would whisper, and your whisper would be louder than my words. In Jesus' name. That's a pro tip, by the way. If you're taking notes on a sermon, don't write down what I'm saying. Write down what Holy, what Holy Spirit is saying to you while I'm preaching, because that's more important, isn't it? What God's whispering to your heart is always more important, right? Okay. Colossians chapter 4, listen to the word of the Lord. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He's a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. Notice Paul sent. He's like, I want to tell the Colossians something, and how do I, what do I have to do to achieve that? This is, this is before email, before cell phones. I was trying to research, did they have a proper mail delivery system? And they really didn't. They had a kind of mail delivery system. If you were an important Roman official, they, could, they had a mail delivery system for the really important, powerful people. But the average Joe couldn't do what I did yesterday, walk into UPS and be like, scan this barcode, send this thing off. And then, I, and then he goes, oh, the reason, or she says, this, is, this isn't showing up in our system because you... She didn't call me a dummy, but she's like, this is meant for the postal service. Ah, well, they have a pickup. And I said, great, keep it, because that's one less trip for me. But see, you had the luxury of just stopping off, dropping off packages, and they show up. You can even track their whereabouts online. We know the whereabouts of our packages much more than we know the whereabouts of our loved ones half the time. It's like, okay, that's out for delivery, but I don't have a clue where my wife's at. She said Walmart like three hours ago. Okay. She does not get her nails done. Who said that? It's been a lot of years since she got her nails done. <laughs> he said, he'll tell you the news. You got to send somebody. And I think it's interesting, isn't it, that when God has news to tell, he doesn't say, go print Bibles to the ends of the earth. We print Bibles, don't we? He doesn't say, go do podcasts to the ends of the earth. We do podcasts because... It's not just the content of the gospel that needs to get sent to the ends of the earth. Nod your heads. Just pretend you know what I'm talking about. If all, if all Jesus wanted was the message to go to the ends of the earth, send Bibles would have done. But he didn't send Bibles. He sent the message with messengers. People to model and to love. People to, to shepherd and to parent. He, the gospel involves certain relationships. So this wasn't just, oh, you know, back in the day, they, they, they didn't just send the letter, they sent the messenger. But nowadays, we can just send an email. No, no, no. No, it's always better to send a messenger than it is just to send a message. That was true then, it's true now. Anytime you increase the, the, how personal the message is, you get better results. A dude, a dude did this experiment at his business. He, he was like working in advertising for like BMW or something like that. He said, you know, 
the principle of God is he always likes to have increased the intimacy of the communication. If a conflict is happening over text or email, the problem is not usually the people. The problem is usually the fact that it's being done over email or text. So if you pick up the phone and call, suddenly you hear tone of voice because 80% of communication is what? Nonverbal. If 80% of communication is nonverbal, then how much more communication does Paul get by sending Tychicus to read it and explain it and pray over them and bring encouragement to them? And if that's true, then what about us? So this dude, he said, every time I need something done, if I'm going to send an email, instead I'll just make a phone call. And if it's someone in the building, instead of sending a memo, I'll just go talk to him. What he found was people started working on his projects that weren't due for two more weeks instead of their own projects that were due tomorrow. Because they looked him in the face and he asked them and they, and they agreed. And now they feel a connection. Isn't that interesting? Okay. Don't just send words, send people. He says he's a fellow servant. Tychicus is a fellow servant. This is something that I've been praying about for a lot of years. And that is, God, how are we supposed to structure gateway? And one thing that Carrie and I have concluded is that you basically don't grow if you don't serve. That if you're, see, Tychicus isn't a taker. He's not looking around for the buffet options and then, and then going, I like that the best. I'll take. Me. Me, me, me. I have a friend and he's really processing church stuff. He says at his church, they're not even allowed to call it a worship service. They call it a worship experience. But you know why we call it a worship service and not a worship experience? Because it's not about you. It's not for you. It's you bringing something for him. That's why it is a worship service. I don't care if you can sing good. Sing bad for Jesus. I don't care if your feet hurt. Stand up for Jesus. This isn't about you. This isn't for you. This is for him. And the extent to which we take on this attitude of being servants, what I've noticed is if you serve, you grow. If you serve, you connect. If you serve, your heart starts to get oriented. You know, I like churches drawing people by giving away a free car. Come to our church. We'll give you a free car. There's going to be a raffle. And I'm like, you're going to win them too. what you win them with. And if you appeal to their greed to get them in the door, but then later try to get them to follow Jesus and die to greed, that's going to be a problem. Right? And so Jesus has this very weird strategy where he tries to keep people away from him all the time. He's constantly trying to push the crowds away and hide from the crowds and be alone because everyone who touches him gets made whole. And when you listen to his words, your spirit comes alive. So he's magnetic. People want to be with him. He can't help himself. It's the opposite, right? Like we are trying our hardest to get any, can you please, we just want you more, we need you more. And he's like, I just want five minutes alone. All right, okay, I'm on a little rant here. But you got it. His message is designed not to give people what they want, but to tell people what they need to hear that they don't want to hear, which is die to yourself, take up your cross daily, follow me instead of what you want. Your dreams need to go on the altar. God's will is your food. Do his will instead of yours. It isn't about you. And if you try to make life about you, you'll die and go to hell. Your life here will be horrible. 
I'll calm down. Your life here will go poorly and your eternity will be worse. Or you could die to your wisdom, learn different wisdom, do God's will. Your life here will actually be hard but way richer and your eternity will be bliss you can't imagine. Okay, servant. It's all coming from the word servant. Fellow servant. It's a big deal. So like, this is what I finally landed on. Oh, every single attender serving somewhere, meaningfully. Hopefully in a way that they have some measure of gifting in. But when you serve in the zone you're created to, you come alive. And I don't know where we got the idea work is a curse. Oh, work. Can't wait to get on vacation. Dude, I look forward to coming home from vacation. I'm happiest when I'm at work. Work predates the fall. We get on with the sermon. Onesimus. Let me keep reading the verses. We'll get to Onesimus here as soon as I get to him. Verse 8. I have sent Tychicus to you for this very purpose so that you may know how we're doing and that he may encourage your hearts. Verse 9. He's coming with Onesimus, the faithful and beloved brother who's one of you. They'll tell you everything about here. I forgot to even ask if we're recording. Probably are. Yep. I always ask, even though the answer is always yes. Onesimus. How many of you remember what, what is distinctive about Onesimus? He was a runaway slave. He's also from the city of Colossae, so that's kind of fun. He's a hometown boy. He's, it's, Paul says he's beloved. Can somebody translate what beloved means? People like him. He, yeah, he does, he does, Paul loves him too. But he's a beloved brother. There's just something about Nessie. <laughs> I don't know, what would you nickname him? That people just like the kid. Because he was a runaway slave, it's a transformation story. It's your and my story. You know, like them cardboard testimonies that, that you see where they're really simple. I was this way, then I met Jesus, now I'm this way. He was a runaway slave. He, he was a nobody from nowhere. Now he's a somebody who knows somebody. And he's trying to tell everybody about somebody. And so he joined with Paul. And he, Paul says he's useful. You know? I just love the fact that, that the gospel, you know how the, the different classes of society which still operate today where if you have more money and you have more power and you have more education and you drive the right car and you wear the right clothes, you're somebody, you walk into the room and you take up the air and then if you're nobody and you smell bad and you whatever, then you kind of, mm, not as much influence. I love how the gospel doesn't do that. I love how the gospel says, runaway slave, yeah, you're on the ministry team planting the churches in the first century, the first disciples planting the first churches. I just love that. I just love that. Okay, next verses. Verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, my fellow prisoner greets you. Aristarchus is, shows up with Paul repeatedly. He's on you know, the big trip to Rome, the infamous like, final trip to Rome. Um, he keeps showing up in the clutch. There's a scene in Acts 19 where in the city of Ephesus, the gospel makes so much progress that it disrupts the local economy. The local economy is silversmiths and other artisans making these little statues, these little idols for Artemis, the, god, the great goddess. And so many people in that city come to Jesus 
And they don't just come to Jesus and do the little American thing where it's about Jesus giving me what I want. Add a little Jesus to your day. No, they actually get it. They throw away their idols. They change. They sell out. They surrender. Their life becomes 100% about Jesus, not what it was before. And it's so disruptive to the local economy that a, that a silversmith leads this rioting group angry to the local government, uh, like to the local, what's the name of the dude, of the, the governor, whoever's he, the dude, and they riot. For hours they yell, great is Artemis of the, and they can't find Paul, so they grab this guy, Aristarchus, and another dude named Gaius. They grab them and drag them away because they can't find Paul. Good enough, you're one of his dudes, we'll beat you instead. It's fun to be Aristarchus, right? Just, I'm just here, you know? And remember how the others were like, Paul's like, I'm going to go talk to the crowd. And the others were like, like Luke and the others were like, Paul, what is wrong with you? And he's like, I got Jesus, I'll be fine. And they're like, you have a death wish. You just want rewards in heaven. What about us? We don't want to have to see this and go through inner healing sessions afterward. This is trauma, dude. Just walk away. Aristarchus. Anyway, good stuff. He just keeps showing up in the clutch. Next verse. As does, okay, I'll just finish. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner. I said next verse. I want to say something about that. My fellow prisoner. Even if they throw the Christians into jail, Paul says the word of God is not chained. Right? My friend Carolyn Yoder said that she grew up singing in prisons and in churches, singing in prisons and in churches. Her dad was an evangelist. They'd go into prisons. They'd sing songs about Jesus. They'd give a gospel presentation. They'd give an offer for people to receive Jesus. They'd pray with the inmates. They'd give them Bibles. That's, how, that's what she grew up doing as a kid. There was a song she used to sing that really seemed to get an emotional response because it was about, he's here. In fact, that was the refrain of it. He's here. He's here. This is what my friend Carolyn said about being in jail versus being in church. The people in jail sang with more emotion than the people in church. This is what she said. The people in jail looked more free than the people in church. The people in church looked more bound up. The people in jail were opened up. My friend Oscar Tucker said the same thing. He went to jail. The judge said for murder, he said, you'll never get out. If I'm, if I'm alive and I have any say, you'll never, you'll never get out of here. He met Jesus, got radically transformed. He said, I was free. He said, I, st- I went from so lost to I had a ministry. I was praying with people. I was reading scripture with people. I was pastoring those people. I had a ministry in prison. I went before the same judge. He said, I can't believe I'm saying this. You ain't the man I, that I sentenced. There ain't, you ain't no threat to nobody. If I set you free, you're just going to do good in the world. And Oscar said, you don't have to set me free. I got a ministry right here. I don't care what happens. If I'm here, I'm doing... Of course, the, the fact that I know the story is because he was... Standing right over there and tell me the story, you know. Yeah. Fellow prisoner. 
Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, as does Mark. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Mark, this is the Mark who wrote, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that Mark. He's this guy. It's the earliest account of Jesus' life and teachings, both Matthew and Luke. Just basically borrow his structure and then add more detail. It's a gospel of action. Jesus in there is a man of action. You know how you've heard all your life, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. The gospel of Mark blows that out of the water. It's, 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 it's Rambo Jesus, mean and wild. He's a man of action, and he's in constant conflict with the devil and religion and the government, and then they murder him, and he comes back like, no, you don't. It's, it's, a, good, it's a good story. There's a little detail in there in the, in the crucifixion arrest sequence where it says that there was a young man also following Jesus, and when they arrested Jesus and they tried to arrest the disciples, they laid hold of him to, to, to pull him in too, and he slipped out of his clothes and ran off naked. That's dude bro. That's John Mark, as far as I can tell. Because that's the kind of detail that an eyewitness, and I like how he doesn't say it was me. It's like everybody's nightmare, you know. It's like, you know that terrible nightmare you have where you're in the high school cafeteria or you stand up to give a speech and like somehow in your dream, it's not good. Mark's like, yeah, that happened to me for real. On the worst day of my life, actually. This is the same Mark that Barnabas said when, when Paul and Barnabas were ready to start out on a ministry trip. Barnabas said, let's take Mark along. And, and Paul said, no, no, no. Last time we took him along, he chickened out, he quit under pressure, and he went home to mama. I'm not taking that boy nowhere, no how. And Barnabas said, where do you think you... This is my... This, what you're about to get is Tim's filling in the blanks. So this is not Bible, this is my speculation. Then I hear Barnabas saying, oh, really, Paul? How about how I stood up for you when all the other apostles said, that's that church-persecuting jerk? And I said, no, 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 he met Jesus, he's different. I believed in you when no one else did, and now you are mad at me for showing the same grace to the kid that I showed you? Where do you think you would be without my grace, Paul? And Paul said, well, I ain't going to trust a deserter again. I'm picking Silas, and we're going this way, and Barnabas picked Mark, and they went that way. You know this story? I hate that, because I've lived that like five times in my Christian life. Not fun stuff. Where you know you're both Christians, you know you both love Jesus, but you can't find a way to see eye to eye. So you bless each other, and you part company. But guess what? Here he is. Here he is, right here. Paul's partnered with Mark. Oh, by the way, Mark says hi. And I'm going, oh, the comeback kid. I like that. It just, it matters to me. It, it hurt my heart as a baby Christian seeing that these guys couldn't get along. It hurt my heart my whole Christian life, to be honest with you. I want Christians to be able to get along. Amen. And when we can't, it just feels, because you know it ain't going to be that way in heaven, so what are we missing on earth? So it makes me really happy to see they're back together working. Next verse. Oh, and then he says, concerning whom you have received instructions, and if Mark comes to you, welcome him. Why would you have to clarify that they should welcome Mark unless 
there might have been something going on in the, that he needed to make sure. We're cool now, guys. He's legit. And Jesus, who is called Justice, greets you. These are the only ones of the circumcision among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they've been a comfort for me. Here's what he's saying. These guys are Jewish. Now, Paul knows, Paul knows that the gospel transcends culture, but it just is a reality of the heart that when someone speaks your heart language, and they cook your home food, and they greet you with that greeting, and they know those songs you know. And you don't have to explain everything in great detail because you get it. You understand each other. That culture, while the Bible affirms diversity of culture, it does affirm that people each have a home culture. And Paul says, it's really nice in the midst of these hard times to have some actual Jewish people with me that understand me. You don't have to explain. We get it. There's an understanding because we come from the same heart cultural home. They say that if you hire a pastor for your church from a very different region of the country, like if you're from the south and you hire someone from like the north, or if, if you're from, let's say you're from Alabama and your church says, we, wanna, we want someone who's a good preacher. So you bring people in and you and they, oh, that guy's a great preacher. Then you hire him. And then you can't figure it out, but there's just constant conflicts Oh, he's from Washington State, and there's all sorts of culture clash happening that nobody understands. We don't know what it is or why it is, but it's culture clash. I think that happened here with me just saying, shh. Culture is powerful for comfort and conflict. Next one. Epaphras, who is one of you, another Colossian, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. Oh, I love this guy. Listen to this. He is always wrestling. He's always wrestling in his prayers on your behalf so that you may stand mature and fully assured in everything God wills. For I testify for him that he's worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. So he works hard and he prays hard. And Paul says... This boy, this boy, he's all, Epaphras is always wrestling in prayer for you. When he prays, he doesn't pray casual prayers. He prays intense prayers. He prays passionate prayers. He's wrestling. Where, that, where does that phrase wrestling in prayer come from, guys? I'm hearing like four or five people are saying, Jacob, in the Old Testament... There's a night where, it, where an angel shows up and Jacob, it says, wrestled with the angel until dawn. The sun starts to come up and then the angel says, you got to let me go. And he says, I will not. I will not let you go until you bless me. And then after the wrestling match, the angel messes with his hip so that for then on in his whole life, he walks with a limp, which is interesting. Prophetic significance of that. And then changes his name from Jacob to Israel, which means to struggle with God, which is why I named you Israel, boy. That's why I named, I, because I'm like, I want, this, I want this, this guy to be one who wrestles with God and overcomes 
I don't mean you beat God. I mean you overcome by wrestling with God. That's where the victory is won. The victory is won in prayer, wrestling with the Lord till he says, you've got it. I'm granted. Blessing granted. When you win in prayer, you win. And that's, that's the legacy. That's what, you know, and then the whole, the whole nation takes on that. This, this is a people who understands where their source is, and they wrestle. And Paul says, Epaphras gets it. He is constantly praying for you guys to grow up into your salvation and be mature and walking in all the will of God. Man, when, you, when, you're, when you're a discipler, when you're out there on the mission field and you're leading people to Jesus, you know that it's easier to get them to say a prayer and come forward in a service than it is to get them securely rooted in obedience, knowing Jesus, walking in maturity. It's a totally, and if you, if you don't finish well, what's the point of even starting? Right? Glenn's going to talk about this when he comes because he led like 200 people to Jesus and then all of a sudden one day he realized, wait a minute, who's discipling them? So he tracked them down. All 200, he tracked them down as best he could and he ended up discipling. Out of the 200, he led in a sinner's prayer to receive Jesus. Do you know how many he discipled? Six. Six. And he gave up his job making... You know, in one, he, he gave up his job because his job would have cost way more time than he had. Either I can disciple these six. So now he, he said, I, I got to quit my job because my job, I have to give up too much time and I won't have time to disciple these six. So now he's making in one week what he used to make in one day. But his evenings and weekends are now free. And that's all that matters because the kingdom is all that matters. Money doesn't matter. Kingdom matters. So he... Yeah, and he had to get rid of his Porsche because it was too small. He couldn't put people in the Porsche. I'm telling the testimony. Don't do it. Let's let him tell, tell the story. But Epaphras knows. My, so he's praying. These, these baby Christians, I'm not going to rest in prayer till they're mature, till their devotion and obedience has risen and they are walking in the teachings and sayings of Jesus. You know, half the church doesn't even believe the teachings and sayings of Jesus matter. Half the church views the teachings and sayings of Jesus as old covenant. Not normal or not, not acceptable for the Christian. In other words, they're not even accepting the idea that Jesus is Lord. And that to submit to him means to do what he said. There's a theme that has, God has been depositing in this house recently. How many times lately has the Holy Spirit brought up the passage of Jesus where he said, if you do what I say, you're like a man who builds his house on the rock. And if you don't obey my sayings, you're like a man whose life's built on the sand, whose house is built on the sand, and the hardships are going to come, and your life's a wreck and a disaster. Obey me. Don't just listen to me. Don't just hear my words. Do what I say. Rearrange your life to obey me. And, and Epaphras, I know I'm harping on this, but Epaphras won't let go till he sees that the Lord has granted the level of transformation into maturity that he needs to see. Mature, fully assured. Do you know what fully assured means? You're not just in, you know you're in. I had a friend and I said, do you know that your sins are forgiven and that if you died right now, you would go to heaven? He says, no. I walked him through a few key passages about the blood of Jesus, about the sacrifice, about the righteousness. The, the apostle John saying, I've written these things to you so that you might know that you have eternal life. You can have eternal life and not know it. But when you know it, you become emboldened. 
Now you're bold in prayer. Now you're bold in life. Now you have a place that you can stand. So I gave him a few scriptures, and then I said, now do you know that if you died right now, where you would go? He goes, I do now. It took five minutes. But that doesn't mean his walk's done. Okay. I like this guy. Stan has a little thing. It says, um, push. Epaphras, always wrestling in prayer. Stan said, the Holy Spirit told me, push. And I said, what's push mean? And he said, pray until something happens. I said, dude, I'm stealing it. I'm giving you credit, though, Stan, so I didn't steal it. Pray until something happens. Push. Next one, Luke. The beloved physician. Great learning and great devotion are not incompatible, friends. Just because you're smart doesn't mean you have to be poor in faith. You're allowed to be an intelligent believer. You're allowed to be a well-learned believer. You're allowed to be a well-read believer. I think the world thinks that's the opposite of the truth, don't they? Eh, Only the dummies believe. No, no, no. Some of the brightest minds that have ever lived have been saints. Luke was constantly with Paul on his travels, and he's the dude who wrote Luke slash Acts. And I love Luke Acts. He has this careful, interviewed, detailed, gathered eyewitness testimony, and it's all written for this guy named Theophilus. And the scholars go, we don't know if Theophilus is a real dude or if it's a made-up name. And I'm like, dude, he's a real dude. Scholars are just never sure of anything, are they? The one thing, like, you know... The one thing you won't come up with if you get more than two or three scholars in a room is a conclusion. <laughs> but Luke Acts, I love it so much. If you study Luke Acts and you go, we're going we're gonna to follow this book. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna, we're gonna let his emphasis become our emphasis. It's going to be the, the Gentiles, women, the poor, sinners, outsiders, outcasts, the least, the last, and the lost. That's who Luke loves. And he pushes this gospel that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's good stuff in there. It's real good stuff in there. Next one, Demas. Oh, boy. Demas. Verse 14. Luke and Demas. Oh, Paul mentions Demas three different times, but the the harshest mention is later after this, where in 2 Timothy 4 we read, Demas... 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, Demas, because he loved the world, has deserted me. Because he loved the world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. I'm sure that's not how Demas would have explained what happened. You know what I mean? That's not a Demas-approved interpretation. But it is a Holy Spirit-approved interpretation. Demas, because he loved the world. Did you know it's possible to be in church and still love self primarily, not Jesus? Did you know it's possible to lead a church? Did you know it's possible to be a missionary and, and be even a sacrificial missionary and still have self and carnality? 
Did you know there's a, there are lots of carnal pleasures to be had in Christian ministry? There's something very pleasing to the ego about being spiritual and being important and doing important things for God. But what reveals the root, what reveals a person's true motives is trouble, hardship. If when the going gets tough, character is what comes out, then character is what was there. If when the going gets tough, sin comes out, then friends, you and I need to stop making excuses and blaming the circumstances that squeezed it out of us and start owning the fact that the circumstances didn't cause it, they revealed it. If you squeeze a ketchup bottle, mustard comes out, it was already there. You didn't make me lose my temper, Carrie. I lost my temper, and you were the opportunity. It's not her fault. Although young, young husband Tim certainly thought. If she wouldn't, then I wouldn't. Guys, that's straight Satan talking. Right? And Paul says, Demas was in love with the world. That's why he quit. He didn't really love Jesus. We thought he did. See, Judas was sim- Judas preached gospels, led people to Jesus, didn't he? You can nod. Judas healed the sick, didn't he? Laid his hands on sick people. They got healed, didn't he? Judas, one of the twelve. Could you nod your heads? Help me. Sometimes I'm not sure if I'm speaking English anymore. Judas cast demons out, didn't he? Not one of the other disciples, when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, they didn't, none of them turned and looked at Judas and said, well, that guy. They all said, who? Nobody suspected him, but he was stealing the whole time. Dipping his hand into the treasury, using it for his own benefit the whole time. There's a lot of worldly pleasures to be had in ministry, but hardship will drive it and reveal it. And I love how Paul says, when Demas wasn't there for me, he says, verse 16 of 2 Timothy 4, at my first defense, no one stood with me, but everyone deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. I've wept over verse 17 of 2 Timothy 4 at times. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Jesus is good. Next person. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you read the letter from the Laodiceans or that I wrote to them. This is interesting. Nympha is a wealthy woman. And you say, how do you know she's wealthy? Well, because the church meets in her house. And if it was a little tiny house, the church wouldn't meet there. That wouldn't make sense. That's like saying, can you come pick me up, Tim? And there's nine of you. And you know my Saturn hardly holds four. You know, like Ray's in the front and Israel's in the back and Brady's in the back. And Israel says, I can't even put my feet down on the ground. Are you sure you can't move your seat up anymore? And Stan's like, my head's coming out the ceiling. If we get into a car accident, there's going to be some neck injuries because everybody's head's already touching the ceiling. I don't mean to complain about my car. My point is, that's not who you get to pick you up. You get the dude with the 15-passenger van. And when the church is looking for somewhere to meet, you know, 
They go, let's go to, let's go to Nympha's house. She's got a big old house, which is fascinating, right? Because we know wealthy women were the ones who funded Jesus's ministry. Or we should know that because it's right there in the book. Wealthy women were the ones funded Jesus's ministry, supported him financially. And here we are again with a godly woman who has, who has a house and says, the reason I have a big house is because I have a hospitality gift. So sometimes it's real, it's real easy to judge people. Oh, look at that house. Oh, my goodness. Don't do that. Don't do that. You don't know what their call on their life is. You know? That might exist to serve people. And then small churches judge big churches for having like $5 million expansion projects. And I'm like, dude, but if you look at the per capita, per person cost of having a huge building and then having thousands of people versus having a church of our size with our building, we're paying more per person for the building than they are. Just be careful not to judge is what I'm trying to say. In the original mission, Jesus says this, when you go into a town, find somebody with a hospitality gift and stay in their house the whole time. The whole time. Pray for, their, for your blessing to rest on them, and it will, if a man of peace is there. And if not, let it return to you. But I find that interesting. House church was the original movement because Christianity was an illegal religion. And if you have a building with a sign out front that's like, aim your arrows here, you know? That's, you just don't do that. Constantine made Christianity legal in about the early 300s, and then after that, we got buildings. But before that, we were kind of it's just the way we had to do it, it was in houses. So we shouldn't feel bad for having a building. I think our building is a luxury, but it's not a necessity. It's a luxury. Notice that there's another letter that he wrote to the Laodiceans. And I remember a, a preacher saying that he was grilled on whether or not, if we found the letter to the Laodiceans, should we put it in the Bible or not? And I'm like, dude, what? Sometimes Christians are the weirdest. You're going to, that's not a real, okay. But Paul says, read the letter that I wrote to them and then have them read the, this letter that I'm writing to you. Because that was the ministry resource at the time, you know? And the interesting thing is, when you write a letter to somebody, you usually also send them a reader. Because in the, in, out in the boondocks, love you, buddy. Great job today. Out in the boondocks, you had about a 1% of the population that could read. Yeah, about, like out in, out in the boonies, about 1% of the population could read. In the cities, it maybe got as high as 15%. But writing letters wasn't as simple back then. You just write a letter, no, yeah, read it. You have, sometimes you've got to send a reader. Let me move on. Archippus. We're almost done, guys. Verse 17, And say to Archippus, See that you complete the task that you have received in the Lord. See to it that you complete the task that you have received in the Lord. Do you know the task you've received in the Lord? There's a call on your life. It's not the call that's on my life. This is a good word, by the way, for everyone. A lot of folks start well. 
Not everyone ends well. Some, some folk don't start well, but they end well. Some folks start real well and end very poorly. And Paul says, there's a call on your life. Tell this young man, I assume he's a young man. I don't know. Is he young? Is he old? I don't know. But Paul says it's imperative. Tell this guy, you finish this thing. You take it all the way to the, you, you push all the way to the finish line. I remember I was in a meeting one time. And you know how you pray over, it's not, it's not, it's not my church. I don't know these people. So you're praying over people and just whatever comes out is what's coming out. And I, were you there? This was over in Dover on New Street. And there was a young man in the back. Yeah, it was Jackie, Jackie Harrison's church. And there was a young man in the back and this verse all of a sudden just came into my spirit and I couldn't let it go. And I remember exhorting him to finish the work that the Lord has assigned to him. And it just, it wouldn't let me go. Finish well. Complete the task. Complete the task. So it behooves each of us to know, what's the call on my life? What's the call on my life? I'm crafted by Jesus with a specific part to play in the work of of the kingdom. What has he said to me? What has he breathed on? What are those passages that come awake for me as I read? What are those areas that as I volunteered in different things to find my zone, speak to me? What are those, what are those aspects of, of people that I'm most drawn to? Because what, what you have a, an anointing for, you'll also have eyes to notice when it's missing. And instead of going and complaining to Pastor Tim that the church doesn't do it, you might want to recognize you're probably the answer the Holy Spirit is raising up. Because Tim's only one dude, and it takes a village. And every part is essential. 1 Corinthians 12 says this, that God's arranged the parts of the the body exactly as he sees fit. So if we're missing something, is it because someone hasn't been activated yet? If we're missing something, is it because the gifts are here but the person hasn't been developed yet into their full calling. Stuff that I think about. Because it's so easy for us to be like, oh, we're missing that. You know, we'll just pray God sends us someone from out there to do that. Maybe, or maybe, the answer's already here. See to it you finish the work the Lord's assigned to you. Not the church. Not finish the work the pastor assigned to you. Not finish the work that the church voted on. Finish the work the Lord has assigned to you. It's very dangerous in a small church. And I'm, this is unscripted. It's very dangerous in a small church that we serve out of obligation because we see the need. And there's always a time and a place where we have to do that. i got to take out the trash. I don't feel particularly called to take out the trash. But I live at this house, and I have to take out the trash. I have to vacuum because somebody's got to vacuum, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. But if your whole life is consumed with doing things out of obligation, there's no life in that. Right? Good is the enemy of, of best. So it's very dangerous in a small church that our life is filled up with serving out of obligation instead of anointing and calling. So see to it that you finish the task you received 
from the need? No. Your calling is that sweet spot where the dream on your heart meets the need in the world, and there's sustaining grace from God. You could do that the, you could do that the next thousand years and never burn out. As long as I get to preach, even if it's to three people, I'll never burn out. It's when I do the other stuff too much and not this enough that I'll become resentful and dried up and my joy will fade away. All righty. Prayer team, go on ahead and come on up. Let's try it in English. Prayer team, go ahead and come on up. <laughs>